Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Steve Keller. I have been on vacation. If you weren't here in the beginning, uh, Jane and I have been on vacation with our family for the last two weeks. And one of my traditions when I come back from vacation, whether you knew it or not, is I always tell you a vacation story. And I'm going to have to disappoint you this year because I'm not going to give you a vacation story. This year, you get a pre-vacation story. So this is an upgrade, okay? So real, real life, true story, can't make this up. Um, as you'll see in just a minute, a few days before we went uh, on our vacation, we were going to be out in the wilderness and doing some fishing, and I decided that, that we needed some new fishing equipment, so I went out to the store and got a couple rods and reels and some fishing tackle, and with, this excited Noah very, very much, and so uh, the day before we were leaving, I was, I was doing some study in, in, uh, in, in our office in the house, and Noah came up to me and he goes, hey, Dad, um, I have an idea, and you know he's you know the way kids want to try and work you into the yes because I want to do this thing, and you know it's it, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing, and I just wonder if you would let me do this thing. And I said, No, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to take uh, some of the fishing equipment and I want to practice. And I thought, Well, I'm going to say yes to this one, and here's why. Number one, he's a 10-year-old boy, and kids spend so much time doing this, you know, these days. I thought, I just want him outside. I want him to be a 10-year-old, and besides, there's nowhere to fish in our neighborhood. So I said, Noah, go right ahead. Go practice fishing. So Noah leaves. I went back to work, and probably an hour, an hour and a half later, Noah comes in, and he says, hey, Daddy, can I show you something? I said, sure, sure, no, I, I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll take a break. And what, what is it? So he said, well, I need you to come to the bathroom with me. And I thought, oh, no, you know, has Noah gotten sick? What's going on here? So we walked to the bathroom, and he says, um, look there. So I walked over, and I looked, and this is what I saw. That's my bathtub. Noah had filled up the bathroom. And so I looked at this thing. I said, wait a minute, Noah, Noah, Noah. That is a half a pound smallmouth bass. Where did you get that? And he said, well, I went fishing. I said, Noah, there's nowhere to fish in our neighborhood. You don't know how to use Uber. Where did this fish come from? And he said, I caught it in the, in the, in the lake. I said, Noah, there is no lake in our neighborhood. Where did you get this? I said, tell me where you went. So Noah said, okay, well, I went down the street. I went down that street. And he, he gave me physical directions. And I said, Noah, wait a minute. Are you telling me that you caught this fish in the Lipton Tea Factory retention pond? And he goes, yeah, 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 in front of the big tea factory. And I said, Noah, there are signs all over that pond. Do you, do you know what the word is on those things? And he said, yeah, yeah, it says no trespassing. I said, do you know what no trespassing means? And he said, yes, yes, it means don't take this path, don't take that path. And I said, no, it means you can't fish there. It's against the law. So uh, there are two good things, though, that came out of the story. One is the Lord has, has, has chastised me for being a negligent father. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that Noah and I get to perform community service together in Suffolk, uh, Suffolk for the next step. No, we really don't. But it was just, whoa. So anyway, you can't make it up. All right. So anyway, we went fishing and did great. And there's your pre-vacation story. All right. Isn't that great about kids? Don't, don't you just love children? Oh, okay. Well, today we are, uh, we are in the middle of the book of Romans. 
literally, we've gone through chapter 8, so we, we have just finished this crescendo of salvation life and the goodness of God and how we can't be separated from the love of God. And um, we're going to go now a little bit further. We are going to finish the book, but we're going into a sermon series, uh, a sermon series within the series. It's going to take two weeks to preach this, this next little section. And before we get started, I want to ask a question, okay? Now, don't worry. It's not one of those questions that will embarrass you. Does anybody out there uh, like a good mystery? We do. We do, don't we? I mean, we, we, many of us love a good mystery. You know, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, um, you know, the game Clue, uh, the mystery of Neil's incredible haircut. I mean, we just love mystery, all right? And it's good that some of you love mystery because today we're going to get into biblical mystery. And, and I want to say something about mystery in general. While we do enjoy mystery in books and we really enjoy mystery on the big screen, Christians as a whole, now this might not be all of you, but we as a whole are typically not that comfortable with mystery in the Word of God. Um, and, And here's the thing about the Word of God. There is some mystery in the Word of God. There are some things that we on planet Earth in all humility can't quite get. Now, I want want to settle your minds, okay? When it comes to spiritual issues that matter, okay, anything and everything that we need for life and faith and practice, it is crystal clear in the Word of God. God never leaves us wondering about anything that really matters and is critical to, to our salvation, okay? We would call those the essentials. The essentials are clear, okay? Now, here are a few essentials, for example, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is Lord of all, that He is our Savior, and He is the only way to God. That's an essential. That is absolutely clear. Here's another one, that God calls you and I to live a life of worship and obedience to Him. Even in the 21st century, when people are trying to push absolutes out of the way, that's an essential. It's absolutely true. It's clear in the Word of God. Here's another one. We've identified this in the last couple of years, that in the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be about the Great Commission. That command to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us, that is clear. Here's uh, the other part of that, too, is that we are to live out the great commission in the spirit of the greatest commandment which is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and and love our neighbor as ourself. Um, Another one, we are to be people of the Word and people of the Spirit. Those are all essentials. They're all crystal clear, and they come to us with crystal clarity in the Word. But, again, there is a fair amount of mystery in Scripture about some matters that we would call non-essential, okay? And and here's what I mean. Where we have some information and we have some dots about things, but they're not all quite connected in Scripture. And when we get this in Scripture, here's what we do. We, human beings, made in the image of God with logical, rational minds that work, with our God-given curiosity and, 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 and investigative tendencies, what we do is we connect those dots. 
And that's actually how not all, but much of our Christian theology came to be. Now, as I go into this, let me say something else. There is something today that is desperately needed in the world of theology, okay? Now, I'm going to give you, this one's for free, okay? This is something that is desperately needed in, in the theological world, and it is a thing called humility. We need humility in the theological world because here's what happens. As we connect the dots, different people come to some different conclusions. Sometimes when that happens, here's what happens in the theological world. Someone will wander over here, someone will wander over here, and people that are supposed to be united on the essentials, brothers and sisters, family, what happens is on these non-essential issues, man, the first starts flying, right? People start getting upset, so much so that, you know, even some of our denominations have come from just splinters of theology, fractions, divisions within the, in, in the body of Christ. So humility is really important. Now, I have, I have someone close to me in my life that says, well, there's another answer instead of humility. Let's just throw away theology. That's impossible. Theology is what we believe about God. It's the study of God. Everybody who calls himself a Christian, we all have a theology. And here's what I want you to know about theology in general. It is awesome. It is awesome when it is based on the Word of God. Now, what I mean by that is when we connect those dots that aren't, aren't, aren't all crystal clear, when we do that and we stay within the context of Scripture, and we are using the content of Scripture to do that, when, when the references that we use actually connect, theology is wonderful. It's an incredible adventure and journey and wisdom and knowledge and strength and, and all those things. And, and, and it helps us to become like trees planted by streams of water with tall limbs and fruit in its season. Here's the other side of it, though. When theology gets squirrely and even scary is when we base theology on us. And folks, this happens all the time. And I don't just mean from folks who don't go to seminary. <laughs> this happens with some of the biggest theological minds on the planet. And what I mean by theology based on us is, is when it's our logic that's connecting the dots, you know, when it's our tradition. You know, a, a lot of my theology, for, I mean, for much of my life, was based on just what I had heard in the past. So-and-so said it, and that settled it. Um, sometimes we, we base theology on our sense of right and wrong, our sense of fairness and our preferences. And when what we believe about God is based on us like that, what we wander into is a Matthew 7.26 scenario. That's building a house on sand. Now, Steve, why did you say all that today? Well, here's why I said it. Because today we are going into Romans chapter 9 today. And, and Paul has talked to us a lot about salvation. And what he's done up to this point is he has given us the essentials of salvation. But what he's going to do today is he's going to talk about how God brings us into salvation. And what it's going to do for some of us is it's going to clear up some of the mystery you know, some of the inner workings of God. But here's the disclaimer, and here, here's just the bottom line. It's not going to be as 21st century as we would like it to be. Imagine that. The Word of God is not going to be as 21st century. It's not a scenario we'll find out where we're in charge of everything. 
where we're calling all the shots, where we are the primary decision makers, and that's hard for 21st century Americans, especially why? Because we like being in control of our destiny. You know, I know we have a lot of American mottos. One of them really could be, no one's going to be the boss of me. Well, Romans 9, it's going to challenge that. Um, and, And I'll just say that Romans 9 can be disruptive. But here's why it's disruptive. Because it is getting into the otherness of God. Romans 9, begin to just, it begins to show and point out to us, creatures on planet Earth, that God is higher, that God is bigger. He is more majestic. He is more wise. He is more glorious than we are. Romans 9 is an incredible reminder that He is the Creator, and we're the created. Paul's going to use an example that we won't get to today, but another great example is Romans 9 reminds us that he is the potter and we are the clay. And listen, if you're on the other side of Paul's theology, which is possible, it's true of a lot of of the church, Romans 9 is an invitation for you to, to just enter into the wonder and the awe of God in a whole new way. It's enough introduction. Let's pray. Father... We love you, and we approach you today as a family. And Father, we thank you today for this journey we get to take into the wonder and the mystery and the beauty of our God. Uh, We just come together as brothers and sisters, and Lord, we place ourselves today underneath your word, not over it, not apart from it, but underneath the living word of God. And Lord, we come today, my desire all week has been, Father, to come as a child with just eagerness and expectation and wide eyes and and humility. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to just walk us into, into the depths of wisdom of this incredible kingdom of God and its king who is our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Again, we're only going to go so far today. This is the Apostle Paul writing to us, and again, this is more about salvation. He says, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. Wow, what a statement. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ if that would save them. Here's what Paul is doing, okay? Paul begins where every discussion, teaching, or preaching about salvation should begin, okay? Every time someone talks about salvation, it should begin right here. Paul begins with compassion for the lost, Oh my gosh, that's where the conversation, that's what, it's part of our tagline, KPC, passion for God, compassion for the lost. This is where Paul starts off. Paul deeply loves his Jewish brothers and sisters. He is anguished that they do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and he aches for them to know Jesus. Paul wants with all of his heart for for the whole Jewish community to just stand together in worship and and, and to rise up and follow Christ everywhere. And yet here it is, like it is, with so much of the Jewish nation lost. And folks, I love it that the Apostle Paul lets us just see his heart, saying, look, I'd even be willing to trade places with these folks. If it were possible, I would be cut off from Christ if that would save them. 
And I'm just going to go ahead and say it on behalf, first of all, of myself and the whole church everywhere. We need this heart. We need this concern. We need this compassion for the lost in the church of Jesus Christ today. You know, I've said this before, and I'm not picking on you. I'm just, I think it's true across the board. In the church of Jesus Christ today, there is way too much anger towards the world. There is way too much judgment over those who are lost. There's, there's, there's too much elitism in the church of Jesus Christ. And on the other side, there's way too little prayer for the lost, way too little outreach and, and service and proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Lord of lords and the, and the King of kings. And, and I just love that what Paul does here for us before he gets into something that's really big is, is he lets us see his heart. And he calls out our hearts. In fact, here's the, here's the picture I see of Paul here. He's like a coach waving us as a team onto the fields, out into fields that, that are white with harvest. And so Paul starts off, and he is just heartbroken over the lost. But Paul isn't just heartbroken over the Jews who are lost. Paul is also a little bit incredulous here. Paul is somewhat astounded that the Jews are lost because they've had so many advantages historically. And so what Paul does next in verses 4 through 5 is he, he, he holds up these eight road signs that God has sent the Jews, eight signs that should have made uh, recognizing and receiving Jesus as easy as just falling off a log. Here are the advantages. Number one, the Jews are the people of Israel. They are chosen to be God's adopted children. That is a historical advantage when the Messiah comes your way. Number two, God has revealed his glory to them before. And what Paul is saying here is, look, throughout the Old Testament, throughout their history, they've experienced God's before. Well, when have they experienced God before? Well, look anywhere you want to. You know, the Red Sea parted. Yeah, cloud by day, fire by night, water from a rock, manna from heaven. I mean, all over the place, they have run into God, the Shekinah glory from, from, from time to time. And, and, and being with the temple, the tabernacle, so having run into the presence of God before and having experienced that, when Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, comes your way, that should make recognizing him. And responding to him a little bit easier. It is an advantage. Number three, God made covenants with Israel that point them straight to Jesus Christ. Number, uh, number four, God gave them his law, which is all about Jesus Christ and points them to Jesus Christ. Number five, God gave them a rich life of worship and sacraments, and even that sacrificial system which, which uh, points straight to Jesus Christ. Uh, number six, I may be messing up the numbers, but there are eight here, trust me. God gave them wonderful promises that are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then there's number seven. Their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all forerunners of Jesus Christ and spoke to them about the coming Messiah. And then finally, number eight, okay? Talk about a cherry on top of the Sunday here. Jesus Christ himself was a Jew, which would make relating with Jesus and bonding with Jesus Christ a whole lot easier for this nation of people. 
But here we are, and as a whole, the Jews have not responded. Now, some have. We have some Jews in the New Testament that have come to Christ, but by and large, as a nation, as a people, they have not embraced Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And and Paul now deals with that thorny question of why? Why not? How could the Jews miss that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who, who, who came to save us, especially when they've been staring Him in the face for century with their rituals, with their, their liturgy, with everyday life, with their ancestry? And this is a question, when Paul answers it, will make it will make some things clearer. It will clear up some of the mystery that, that, that remains over how salvation works, But it also takes a lot of faith and a lot of humility as 21st century Christians to really be able to accept this. So buckle up, because Paul is going to answer four really big questions about salvation. And P.S., we're only going to deal with one of them today. So you get three next week. So you talk about an upgrade. You're going from one to three. But here's the first question. All right, you ready? All right, good. Four of you are. The rest, get ready. It's going to be great. Question number one in verse six, since the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, did God fail in his promise to Israel? In other words, is this God's fault? Now, uh, if if you've been here for for most of of the, the series or you've read Romans before, Paul has a way of asking questions like this, and he always has the same answer. The answer is no, it is not God's fault. In fact, Paul says, not all who are physically born as Israelites are spiritual members of God's people, Israel. In other words, he's saying there is a physical Israel and there is a spiritual Israel. Now, as I say that, I know in every charismatic church, this is when some antennas go up and you think, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, we're going to replacement theology. If you know what that is, absolutely not. That's not where we're going. But Paul does say, look, there's such a thing as a physical Israel and there's such a thing as a spiritual Israel, taking us back to Romans 2, 29, we've heard this one before. Paul says, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. In other words, true circumcision is not just about getting physically circumcised. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to give two examples of this, okay, from from, uh, Israel's past. The first example is Abraham. Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. Now, with these two sons, both of them, Paul says, are physically Abraham's sons. Would anyone want to argue that? Good, no, because you wouldn't win the argument, right? Both are physically his sons, but only one of them, only Isaac, was Abraham's spiritual descendant. Verse 7, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. And then Paul gives us a similar example uh, in... in, uh, He talks about Isaac, one of those sons, the spiritual descendants. He went on to have two sons, one named Jacob, one named Esau. And again, both were physical sons. And what's interesting about these guys, what do you all know about Jacob and Esau? They were were twins. Yes, I mean, very, very close uh, physically, but only one of them was a true spiritual son. And that's Jacob. Now, the big question here is why? Why was only one son the spiritual descendant and not both? And the answer, 
drum roll, all right, you ready for the drum roll? Is because God chose one and not the other. Listen to verse 11. But before they were born, Jacob and Esau, before they had done anything good or bad, Rebekah received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. What's the message? Here it is, verses 12 and 13. Your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scripture, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau, or I preferred Jacob and I I did not prefer uh, Esau, rejected him. So so get this, okay? It had nothing to do, and this is is where, you know, if we're on that real Arminian kind of free will theology, it really eats at that, okay? It had nothing to do with their character, according to Paul. It had nothing to do with how good one was or how bad the other one was. It had nothing to do with any future wisdom. Why is that true? Because they weren't even born yet. Paul is driving the point home that this was God's decision, God's calling, God's grace, God's favor, God's preference. God's choice was Jacob, and it was not Esau. Let me stop here. Why? I'm stopping here because in some of you, there is a four-alarm fire siren going off. Ding, 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 ding. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. In some of our hearts and some of our minds. Steve, this goes against every principle of freedom and fairness. You know, this this goes, what, what about individual faith? What about free will? What about our partnership? Are you just saying that God chooses everything and we're nothing but a bunch of robots down here? Don't worry if that's you right now, because we're going further into this. It it takes two weeks to get there, okay? But I will tell you this. You are going to be blessed by the time we get to the end of this. Nevertheless, though, okay, you're going to be blessed. Nevertheless, even at the end of this, some of the mystery of how God works out salvation, some of the mystery will remain. You might say, wait a minute, you're telling me you are giving us a sermon where we're going to learn some of the mystery, but some of the mystery is still going to be there at the end? Absolutely, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Well, how can that possibly be true? Because you know what we're dealing with here in Scripture? We are dealing with a heavenly paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is when to, uh, to our minds we have two things that we're trying to hold together that by human thinking and human logic, they cannot both possibly be true at the same time. It's a paradox. Well, why did these exist in Scripture? And there are some. Here's why. Because God is bigger than we are. Because God's ways are higher. Because if I and you understood every single thing of every inner working of God, we'd be on even par with Him. There's a little thing called faith. We love that word faith. Well, good, because you get a chance to use it right now. This is where faith comes in. So here's the paradox, all right? I'm going to lay it out for you real simply. I know, hold on to your minds because they might blow apart on this one. The paradox is, according to Scripture, God is in perfect control of every single thing, and He is calling every single shot. And the other side of the paradox is our faith and our will and our choice are still in play. The first time I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, Lord, you've got to be kidding me. How is that possible? It is. This is what the Word of God gives us. If we understood it all again, we'd be on par with God. 
This is faith. Lord, I can't quite work it all out, but I see it here. Now, what we are going to see with this whole idea, this theological truth of predestination, as we walk into it and through it next week, is that it will not at any point violate the goodness or the character or the heart of God. You're going to see that. You're also going to see that predestination is not some random eeny, meeny, miny, mo on God's part, even though at the end of it, we still won't get all of God's reasoning, all of God's rationale. We won't get it all. Tim Keller, who is one of my theological heroes, if you ever heard me say his name before? Yeah, no relation, I'm sorry. But Tim Keller says this, he says, look, with predestination, by holding on to this principle in Scripture, even at the end of the day, we are still left with some difficulties. We are still left with some questions that we can't answer because we don't yet fully know and we don't yet fully understand. But before we cry out, unacceptable, absolutely not. I am a 21st century Christian. Everything is logic. Before we do that, we have to realize that we exercise that same faith with many other precepts and principles in Scripture. I'll give you an example of one, the Trinity. We know from Scripture that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that every member of the Trinity is God and is fully God, and yet they're distinctly, whoa, it is a mind-blower. And see, when it comes to the Trinity, as, as a pastor who has studied, I can explain the Trinity to you. I can walk you pretty far down the road, but there is a point at which when we get to the Trinity, you just can't go any further. And again, that's where faith kicks in. Well, why do we believe it then? Why do we believe the Trinity if we can't quite work it all out? Well, here's why. Because at Jesus' baptism, the Father, the Son, or Holy Spirit, because Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He who's seen me has seen the Father. When we look at creation, where God is creating, all three are involved. There is no question regarding the Trinity. But faith does come into it. For now, I want you to realize this. For now, how God works out salvation, this idea of, of predestination, it is not an essential. Now, this is where some people get their minds blown that are what we call truly reformed or they're very, you know, they walk all the way out on the limb of predestination. There are many Christians, and I mean Bible-believing, spirit-filled, obedient, wonderful Christians who do not quite hold to predestination. They just say, you know what, I can't work it out. I, I, I just can't go there. I'm going to tell you this. This idea that God chooses everything when it comes to our salvation, if you don't believe it, then hear this. It doesn't ruin your salvation. It, it doesn't condemn you. To be an EPC pastor, I better hold the predestination or I'm not getting in this. In the, and I, I do believe it. I do hold on to it. To be a member of this church. You don't have to hold to it. Why? Because it's a non-essential. It's non-salvific. So hopefully that, that, that will give you some, you know, some encouragement. I will say this, though. When it comes to predestination, to throw it out entirely, which some people do, they say, you know what? I just can't put my mind and my heart around a loving God choosing some. And they take it and they say, we're just going to drop kick that out. When you do that, it creates massive Problems. Okay, now just keep it very real with you here. Here's one of the big problems. You are left having to reread, well, not reread, but read around a whole lot of scripture. 
we are left having to ignore a whole lot of the Word of God, like, you know, where, where we read, God orders all things by His will. Uh, uh, well, we better change the meaning of that one. Or every day was planned out for me before even one of them came to be. We got to start ignoring the Word of God, reading around it, changing orthodox meaning. That is really scary. Anytime your theology makes you have to add or take away from the Word of God, please, brothers and sisters, question it, all right? The other side of that is this. Um, the reason we do this with Scripture, you know, we'll, we'll take something we don't like and we'll drop kick it. It is to make God more understandable. And sometimes that works. I'll change my theology. Now I get him better. Well, you may have made your God more understandable, but you know what else you've done? You've made him a whole lot smaller. It's not worth it. It's never worth it. So you might say, okay, Steve, well, you know, you're in a great position. You're up there, you know, and you're kind of pushing our buttons and, you know, saying if we believe this or that. What do you believe? I am really glad you asked. Here's what I believe about predestination. Okay, y'all ready? Here's what I believe. Well, you, I'm, I'm an EPC, so that, that kind of gives it away. But I believe in a paradox I cannot fully understand or fully explain. I embrace this paradox. I believe that God in his wisdom, his grandeur, his glory, his majesty, his love, I believe he determines everything. I believe he calls all the shots. I, he's just that big. He's that wonderful. It's a thing we call sovereignty. I embrace sovereignty. Why? Old bumper sticker from the 80s. Because the Bible says it and that settles it. That's why. I just, I just do. But here's what else I believe. I also believe that our will, our choice, and our faith mysteriously really do factor in. I know. I can see it. It's incredible. Uh, John Stott, another one of my theological heroes, says this uh, about predestination. He points to someone named Charles Simeon who, uh, who held this view from 1831. I love this. And this is me. And this is Stott. Charles Simeon said in 1831, when I come to a Bible text that speaks of election, now that's God's choice, predestination. When I come to a Bible text which speaks of God's election... I delight myself in the doctrine of God's election. When the apostles, on the other hand, exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and my freedom of action, I give myself up to that side of the equation. Folks, that is living in biblical paradox. That is living, I think, in a very healthy, beautiful way within the mystery of God's Word. For some of the ladies who have been in the, the, uh, um, in the Bible study, I think Jane talked to you all about the, both great, uh, about the great both and of the kingdom. That's exactly what we're looking at here. We are dealing with a God as Christians, a God who is with us, a God who is for us, a, a God who died to save us. We are dealing with a God who can be known. He can be loved, he can be embraced, and yet there's a point at which in his wonder and his majesty and his mystery, we step back in reverence and in awe and humility like a child. All right? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father God, thank you. Lord, I thank you that, that the Word of God is not a manual 
that we read to learn how to put something together. Father, I thank you that you are the one who chooses as our heavenly Father. Jesus is our Savior. Holy Spirit as the poured out one from, from Jesus Christ, God. I just thank you that you can be known and you desire to be known by us. And yet, Lord, I thank you too that we will always as human beings look up at you and we'll read, read about you in your word and Lord, we'll reflect and we'll say, Lord, I don't quite get it. And that's why today I thank you for the gift of faith. I thank you that that you allow us to love you with a full heart and to still remain in a place of wonder and mystery over some things. God, I thank you today that you have made everything that we need, however, for life and faith and spiritual practice. You have made it so clear. And we delight ourselves today that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior. We thank you that, Lord, we are called to be people on mission with you. Father, we thank you that we are also being transformed day by day. Father, we are being saved daily as we walk with you, as we reach out to you. Lord, as we seek your face, we bless you that that you are the Lord over your church. And I pray today that you just continue. And I thank you for breathing life into and over your church. We rejoice in being your people, your children. Oh, Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.